All right, it is uh, Wednesday, April 12th, 2017. Uh, our message this evening is called Triumphant. And uh, Pastor Wade did a good job of laying out the three days and three nights mistake that uh, uh, prevails in the larger church world. Uh, so we won't have to go through that tonight. Suffice it to say that it is our position, we believe that it is the Bible's position, that Jesus was crucified on a Wednesday. This means that we do not have to go through the feast schedule tonight to teach that. It means that we do not have to go through uh, the events between the triumphal entry the crucifixion and the resurrection to prove that. We've done it many, many times. I wanted to do something entirely different tonight. I wanted to address our attitude towards the cross of Jesus Christ. I wanted to address the way in which we speak of the cross of Jesus Christ. And most of all, I want to address the way that the cross impacts us. We began our worship service in communion for a reason. We started an introspection for a reason. At the cross, we need to do all of those things. But I want to show you where the history of crucifixion begins in the Word. I want to show you some things that may change your mind about whether the cross was a tragedy or a triumph. Whether you should get teary-eyed and begin to think how sad or whether you should jump off of your seat with excitement, whether you should pass out while watching Passion of the Christ or refuse to go see it or say that you can't look on it or whether it's something that everyone should look at and something inside of you rise up in glorious victory. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 21. We've put a slide on the screen for you and we're going to do that throughout the evening because I want you to be able to refer to these notes later. <clears throat> Our topic is triumphant. In Deuteronomy 21, beginning in verse 22, we have a rather odd verse. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and, say and, and. his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone... Who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is such a strange verse to include in the Torah. We go through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We arrive in the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. Possibly the last day that, Jesus, that Moses is alive. And he gives them an instruction that if you decide that the form of capital punishment you choose is crucifixion, this is a sign that God's curse is on someone. Say God's curse. God's curse. Why on earth would you want to do that? Why on earth would you want to prove that? Why would you need to show the whole world that someone was cursed? And if you did, why does God put a time limit on it 
and say it can only last for a single day. I listed Strong's numbers across the bottom of the screen in an order because I don't want to teach the Hebrew tonight. I want to move faster than that. Those Strong's numbers are worth writing down. The 8518 has to do with being hung. The 853 is irrelevant here. It's a personal pronoun. The 5921 also, it just has to do with what you're being attached to. But that last one, the 6086, it has to do with a piece of timber, a tree, a piece of wood. So the two that you're looking at here, 8518 and 6086. Are you with me so far? Let us move from the law to the prophets. The Hebrew Bible is divided into a law that shapes your heart, prophets that warn your soul, and then writings who instruct your path, your strength, so that you can love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And all three areas of the Hebrew Bible speak to us about crucifixion. The first recorded crucifixion in the Scripture was in our message last week. This is Joshua 10, 26. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees. And they were left hanging on the trees until evening. When Joshua killed them, what did he do? Hung them on a tree. This was the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. Jerusalem meant peace. Joshua wanted you to know that the king who was falsely occupying your peace was not just dead, he was cursed by God. Say cursed. He wanted you to know that the false occupier of Hebron, the one who had stolen your fellowship, was under a curse. Not just dead, cursed. He wanted you to know that the false king of Jarmuth, the one who has prevented your calling, limited your height, your elevation, he's not just dead, he's cursed. He wanted you to know that Lachish, which means strength, the king that had occupied your strength, was not just dead, he was He wanted you to know that Eglon, this king that had stolen the confidence of God's people, was not just dead, he was cursed. Five kings cursed in one chapter. Five kings held up on a piece of wood as a sign that says, when you're an enemy of God, you are cursed. To be hung on a tree was to be under a curse. A curse that God himself put on you. A curse as an enemy of God. In Joshua the 8th chapter, in the 29th verse, he hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance to the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. The king of Ai had participated in a victory against God's people. And why did God's people lose? Because they had made themselves liable to destruction. So when there was triumph over Ai, Joshua didn't just kill their king. He hung his body on a tree so that the whole world would know he was cursed. Six times a crucifixion occurs in the book of Joshua. Six is the number of sin in the Bible. It's also the number of man. Do you think that's a coincidence? 
There are six principalities that are called cursed by God in the book of Joshua. Joshua also followed the letter of the law to the T. He hung them on a cross. He showed that they were cursed as a capital punishment. And then he took them down at sunset. The king who defeated the armies of God was under a curse by God. In the writings. In the writings, our translations have not done us a favor. In Ezra, not Ezra, Esther 2, 23. It turns out that there is an assassination plot. King Xerxes has two men who are plotting against him. These two men... Mordecai overhears talking about wanting to kill Xerxes. So Mordecai goes and tells Esther, Esther, you go tell Xerxes what I've just heard. And King Xerxes responds by verse 23. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. I included Young's literal translation on the screen. Esther 2.23 in Young's literal says, and, this, and the thing is sought out and found, and they are hanged, both of them, on a tree. There's a reason. In today's dynamic translation, they see two words about being hung in a tree and have to decide what that means. Somebody in the prevailing wisdom said, you know, I think that the Persians probably hung people. So this gets translated hung on a gallows. But there's no word for gallows here. In fact, in our next slide, you can see the exact same progression as in Deuteronomy 21, 22. It's the exact same ordering of words. It's the exact same words. What is literally in the text is they were hung on a tree. Why do you think Xerxes wanted their bodies displayed for everyone to see? He wanted people to know They were cursed. The Hebrew is nearly identical in these two passages. And that's an important thing because when you read it as some method of death other than crucifixion, you miss something. In the law, there's a crucifixion. In the prophets, there's six crucifixions. And in the writings, there are multiple crucifixions. And they all speak one united message. This man is cursed. Cursed by God. In Esther 7, beginning in verse 9, what we have is an evil man named Haman. Say Haman. Haman. You're supposed to stomp your feet when you say Haman. In a Jewish synagogue, you can't even mention his name without the people rumbling their feet so loud that you can't hear it because he intended to commit genocide against the people. He was Hitler before there was a Hitler. He devised a scheme in which to have the Jewish people murdered. And more than that, he had a site built for crucifixion in order to have Mordecai, the prince who was instructing Esther, the wise advice in Esther's ear, to have him crucified. And in chapter 7 and verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said... A gallows, 75 feet, a crucifixion site, 75 feet high, stands by Haman's house. He made it for Mordecai, 
who spoke up to help the king. Who was it made for? The enemies of Israel hoped to see a Jew crucified on these very gallows. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows or they hung Haman on a piece of wood or a tree. He had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. I want you to see if you can wrap your mind around this for a minute. The destroyer of the Jews, the annihilator of the Jews, the one committing genocide against the Jews was destroyed for attacking the Jews on the very device he plotted to build for their destruction. Oh, what kind of God do we serve? This brings us to our point in John 11. You've never seen me get to a point so quickly. In John 11, 47 through 53, I put a few excerpts on the screen. Verse 47. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What is the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day? It's a meeting of the leaders of Israel. It is the ruling council. By the way, chief priests are almost always, not almost, they are always Sadducees. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing miraculous signs. Does it sound like the Jewish ruling council was well aware that Jesus was doing miracles? If we let him go on like this, do you hear that? If we let him go on like this. See, they saw it as their responsibility to control whether or not Jesus was allowed to go on like this. And what was the motive? If we let him go on like this, what's that next phrase? Everyone will believe in him. You've heard all your life that the Jews rejected Jesus. That is such an oversimplification of the truth that it borders on a lie. The truth is that Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. The testimony of the leaders who rejected Jesus was that if we let him continue like this, Everyone is going to believe in him. Do you hear the problem? They're worried about losing their position. The people were in love with Jesus. Many times the leaders wanted to kill him, but couldn't find a way. They were scared of what the people might do if Jesus were assassinated. Look at verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. What an interesting thing. They plotted. You know, many times in the Bible, let's just say, when the Jewish leadership killed Stephen, was there a lot of plotting going on? Did they meet in a back room and discuss how to do it? Or did they get so angry that they gnashed their teeth? And then, as one man rushed at him, dragging him away to do what? Stone him. Why didn't they stone Jesus? In fact, why didn't they kill Jesus privately by poison or some way? They plotted on how to kill Jesus. Plotted like charting a course, devising a scheme, developing a plan because in killing him they wanted to do something more than just stop his miracles. 
They wanted to show that he was cursed by God himself. It was the very best way to say you shouldn't follow him. Because if God has cursed him, why would you follow him? They plotted about how to kill Jesus. Who did it? The Jewish leaders. The Jewish people didn't. The Jewish leaders were doing it to keep the people from following him. I don't know where your politics sit, but in the last eight years, our country is said to have done many things that I would not have done. You could say Americans approve of same-sex marriage. Of course, the truth would be Five perverted justices approved of same-sex marriage. You could say that America does thus and so when the truth is only a very small, disconnected remnant who is concerned and obsessed with hanging on to power at all costs are actually the ones who did it. In fact, some people would say that the latest election was a referendum on the previous eight years. The Jews killed Jesus. Well, yes, and Americans approved of same-sex marriage. Did they do it by a vote? No. Did they do it by the world's largest protest calling for this to happen? No. Did they do it because a majority of the American people asked for it? No. Some leaders conspired in a back room and decided to legislate from a bench. And most of us were so appalled that it made us Feel somewhat seditious. You've been told all of your life, the Jews killed Jesus. That's true in as much as the Jewish leadership were in fact Jews. But it is not true that the nation as a whole rejected him. In fact, how many people were saved on the day of Pentecost? Where did those 3,000 people come from? Oh, that's right. And in Acts 15, you find out many of the party of the Pharisees were believers. Where did they come from? Did they become Pharisees between the crucifixion and the first church council? And then become Christians? No, support for Jesus was widespread. And an ignorance and a misunderstanding has given us the idea that the entire nation wanted to kill Jesus in the same kind of ignorance that prevails in trying to squeeze three days in between Friday at sunset and Sunday morning. This happens when we don't understand our Bibles. We don't understand why they were plotting. We've given no thought as to why they have done what they've done, and it is the central point in this story. They wanted to show Jesus was cursed by God so that people would not want to follow him. Is that pretty clear? Oh, well, amen. Caiaphas in this same chapter, chapter 11 and verse 49, it's something that I omitted from the previous slide. (coughs) And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. John goes on to say he didn't say this on his own. He said it as the high priest. In other words, even bad leaders of Israel 
were ordained by God to lead Israel. God is able to steer the righteous and the unrighteous. Are you aware that Caiaphas and Isaiah were in agreement, but for very different reasons? Caiaphas thought he was protecting his own position. If we don't do this, the Romans will come and take away our place, he said in John 11. Isaiah prophesied about this very event in the same way that Caiaphas did, but one man out of a pure motive and the other out of a selfish motive, and yet both used by God. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by whom? Isaiah foresaw that the Messiah would be considered stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted afflicted by god but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought him peace brought us peace rather the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed the writer of acts mr luke He agreed with Isaiah. He even agreed with Caiaphas, but for an entirely different reason. In Acts 2, 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Do you hear that there was no doubt that he was a miracle worker, not on anybody's part? This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Why did they nail him to a cross? They wanted everyone to believe he was cursed by God. The Romans were the best way to get there since Jews were not allowed to crucify publicly. Turn with me to Revelation, the fifth chapter. Say there when you were there. If, like me, from time to time, your parents flirted with church when you were young, you may have moved in and out of some dead organization hoping to stay awake and avoid the wrath of your parents for sleeping. You may have heard a medical doctor from time to time preach on the agony of the crucifixion. You may have heard things like Jesus died by asphyxiation. You may have heard that it was the most cruel, torturous way that anyone could ever have died. All of those things are true. You may have heard arguments about hand versus wrist or where the nerve bundles are placed behind your ankles and under the bridge of your feet and how excruciating it would be to fight to get every last breath, and how normally you had to break someone's legs so that they could no longer push against the very nail that was holding them to the tree and gasp for breath and you would die like that. You may have heard all of those things, and it's aimed at one thing. Oh, how agonizing was the death. And I'm not mocking that. It is agonizing beyond anything that any human ever devised. And yet that entirely misses the point. They wanted to show that he was cursed 
by God so that no one would follow him. In Revelation 5, let us read the pedigree of the Lamb, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. We could teach about that being a marriage contract, but for now we're just going to let it go. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. You mean a search was done of heaven. A search was done of the earth. And a search was done for the regions below the earth. And no one was found worthy. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. This phrase, wept and wept, means that he wept violently. He wept uncontrollably. How sad for mankind. If the marriage contract with God could not so much be as looked into and certainly not opened, if the unveiling of future events was no longer possible because everyone had fallen short. Everyone had been equally sinful. Everyone was like filthy rags thrown away after a menstrual cycle. Everyone, the very best among humanity, whether those still living on the earth, those angelic creatures in the heavens, or those who were in the lower earthly regions, everyone... Equally worthless. I would weep over that. Could you weep over that? How does it feel to you when you find out someone has a disease that's incurable? Need to have more money for research. Let's organize a fun run. Let's do whatever we can do, right? The despair that has hit the old apostle at this moment caused him to break down and weep in a violent way at the thought that there was no cure. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has, has what? Triumph. Has what? Triumph. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Why? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. What was the qualifying reason that Jesus was able to open the scroll? Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. The cross is not sad. The cross is not something to be pitied. The cross is not, oh man, the physical anguish that Jesus was in. The cross is the triumph of the human race. The cross is the highest and pinnacle point in God's plan. A human being, someone born of a woman, was so in love with the Lord, so obedient that he did not sin in his lifetime. He said no to every angry word that wanted to come out of his mouth. He said no to every temptation that you have given in to. Not one time did he sin in his life. 
and he knew that he was destined to be hung upon a tree and considered cursed by the very people he came to save. More than that, who does the cursing when you're hung on a tree? God does. That God's will was to crush him. That the full weight of your sin, the wrath of God Almighty meant for you, was coming upon him. He knew that that was the reason that he was born. And he didn't back away from the difficulty of the task. For the joy that was set before him, he soldiered forward. How can we speak about the cross as a sad event? How could we sit and talk about the physical anguish as if it's worth comparing to the wrath of God Almighty that was vented upon the Son for you? I think perhaps we talk about the physical aspects to avoid having to think about the spiritual implications. This lamb... Listen to what they say about him. Then I saw the lamb (coughs) looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Where is he? He's on the throne of God. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why was he worthy? Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is repeated two more times. He is worthy precisely because he not only went to the cross, he endured its scorn. He had the wrath of God Almighty vented upon him, even though he deserved it not even a little bit. See, Caiaphas intended to set a trap. Caiaphas thought that by having him cursed by God in front of everyone, no one would follow him. And why are the heavens rejoicing? Because he took that curse. Haman, Haman set a trap. He thought that Mordecai being killed in such an ugly way would advance his cause. And he ended up in the very trap that he set. God Almighty devised a plan, a plan that would allow a human being to endure for all other human beings the punishment that should have fallen upon you. That's not only not sad, it is the good news of the gospel. When you see pictures of Jesus on a cross and you say, I just can't bear to look. If you can't bear to look, you can't be saved. 
It is its staring into the truth that he was crucified by God's will so that you could escape that punishment that unites us to him. This is what we're supposed to relive every time we take communion. The very trap that was set and intended to destroy Jesus actually is what showed him worthy to lead us all. Oh, glory to God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength. Why power, wealth, wisdom and strength? Because he coveted none of it in this life. He turned it all away that he might be obedient to his Father. When you think in terms like this, saying I'm a saved sinner sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? If you're a saved sinner, then there was no point in Jesus being crucified. Like being an honest thief. Ought not anybody who realizes the triumph of what he has done turn away from their sin? Isn't it the height of hypocrisy to live in the very sin that he died for and continue while claiming to be united with him? I say the lamb is worthy because he was slain. Consider what mankind's problem has always been. It's your problem too. In Job 9, verse 32... He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. What is Job's problem? He's scared of God because he knows his guilt. Why did Adam hide in the garden? Because he knew he was guilty. Most of man's behavior is hiding from God. Jesus not only embraced him every day, he embraced him every day knowing that the end result would be punishment. We're having a hard time embracing him every day knowing that the end result is life. The cross is not a tragedy. It was a triumphant trap set for the enemy. The very thing that was supposed to cause Jesus' fame to decrease. Jesus' appeal to be lost. His draw to be defeated. Is the very thing that causes us to run to him and love him. How many times does the enemy set a trap that is actually the site of your victory? Church, if we could learn to look at today's trap, today's problem, as a chance to gain victory over him, you will learn to take what the world calls tragedy and make it the most triumphant moments of your life. Job was scared. He said, if only there were somebody to arbitrate so that his terror would frighten me no more. Galatians 3.13 addresses that very subject. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 
It's so easy to read this and see the law as a curse. No, the law prescribed the curse that if you're hung on a tree, you're under God's curse. And he took that for you. Are you hearing me? It's not the law that is a curse. It is a curse prescribed within the law. Do you hear the difference? The law is not bad. It is holy, spiritual, and right. In fact, the very law that defined a crucifixion also prophesies about the one who would take your sin away. The very law that lays out the curse is also the law that prophesies about the lifting of the curse. There is no threat of external penalty that is driving the man who is attached to Christ. And there's a reason for it. Whatever your failure, if you are head over heels in love with Him, if you are yearning for Him, fighting to be included in Him, then whatever the penalty for your failure is, it fell on Jesus. Oh, man. Say, well, what part of the law do you love? The part that says you must stone an insolent child? Absolutely, I love it. I tell my children, do you know what that behavior deserves? You should be killed for what you are doing. But Jesus was killed in your place. Now give glory to God and repent. I love the law. Because every curse that it prescribed, every problem that it prescribed a fix for, Those curses fell upon the man, Jesus. If somebody was doing time for you, would you spit in their face? If somebody was facing the electric chair for you, would you insult their memory? If somebody had taken your fall, would you take their name lightly in vain? Probably not. See, for us, we see the cross as something that is sad. Like, I just have a hard time looking at that, you know? Well, yeah, because you stand in your guilt. That's why. If you know what that cross is achieving for all of humanity, when you see the cross, something changes inside you. It's not the place of death and bondage. It's the place of life and freedom. He knew exactly what he was headed for. He knew it from the early parts of his life. He knew it and he never backed away from it. What lesson should you glean from that? Oh, man. Look at this next one. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin. Say no sin. Can you put that in perspective? There was never a time that Jesus told a lie. If there's anything that's true as a pastor, it's that the first story that I hear is never accurate. See, what had happened was, oh, no, I didn't say that. My wife was misquoting me. Well, how about you be a man and stop speaking through your wife? The first story you hear is almost never accurate. It's always shaded. It always presents us in just a little better light, even though we don't deserve it. Jesus never shaded one truth. He never failed to speak a word that his father gave him. Man, can we say that even about a single day? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. How did he make him to be sin for you? He hung him on a tree. He hung him on a tree before the whole world. He hung him on a tree 
on a high religious day in the most religious city in the entire world. This was not a transaction in a back corner. It was announced in advance. It was lived out for 33 years. He knew what was coming every time he entered the city of Jerusalem. And he went anyway. That's not a tragedy. That's a triumph. When you face difficulty, it didn't catch you by surprise. You knew that when you entered into the meeting, it was going to be horrendous. But you faced it anyway because it was God's will that you do so. That is a triumph over your sinful nature. The cross is the fullest expression of God's victory over man's weak flesh that you could ever make. The cross is a triumphant victory. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Pair these two things together. If Job's rod uh, of correction... If, if God's wrath was removed as Job was asking, if you now stand free from penalty and righteous, how would that change your behavior? You're awful quiet. Can you imagine if you're bankrupt, if you're convicted and sentenced to jail, if you're on death row walking down the aisle to the electric chair and the penalty was removed and placed somewhere else and you were restored to full financial health, full reputation, full freedom in every way, how would you act? Would you call that day a tragedy? Wow. Maybe we don't believe that what we sing about at the cross actually happened for us then. Maybe, maybe somewhere along the way these became religious words to us rather than actually life-giving, life-changing, life-impacting truth. How do you have a bad day when someone else died in your place? You're in line to go into the crematorium in the Holocaust and somebody takes your place. How do you have the right to have a bad day again? Where is the room for complaining? That's another thing you hear a lot of as a pastor. Very rarely to your face, though. You usually hear it leaked through other folks. Everything that nobody approves of. If you disapprove, then why not speak up? I just don't feel like I can. That's right. Gossip. God loves that. He loves it. He loves gossip. If you were set free, if somebody died for you, how much of your life do you think you're entitled to be depressed with? See, the cross is a triumph. The reason we have a hard time seeing it as triumphant is because it would require us to live triumphantly. The great trap was the very thing that was meant to destroy Jesus was the instrument of his victory and his validation. And we fall into a trap. 
We say he did it all at the cross and then we live in an unchained way, changed way and think the cross was somehow sad. The cross is not sad. It's the place where you become righteous in Christ. Do you want to be righteous? If you have been given righteousness, don't you have to live righteously? Can you imagine being set free from the electric chair? They were about to throw the switch and he comes and he takes your place and then you get up and go and steal again? Can you imagine saying, well, because he did that for me, I'm free to continue my life of crime? See, these these are absurd once they come out of the theological realm and into the real world, aren't they? 1 John 4, 8 is such a powerful scripture that is so little understood. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. What does fear have to do with? And where did that punishment fall? It fell on Jesus at the cross. If you are scared, what does it have to do with? So the cross was supposed to do away with your every fear. Say with me, every fear, crucify it. That's where it belongs. Your triumph over fear was at the cross. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Consider, if you have been made righteous, if God's wrath has been removed from you, if there is no place for fear in your life, how free ought you to be? Can you imagine walking around burdened when you have no fear, when you are righteous, when there is no wrath for you, no thought of penalty? You are now free to work for God in an unchained way. Oh, man. We sing songs about freedom. We talk about freedom. And then we live lives that are chained by fear. I think most parenting is driven by fear. In fact, I think most human decision is driven by fear. Do we have an insurance salesman here? Then don't raise your hand. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When you are free from the power of sin and the fear of punishment, how free would you be? Christians ought to be the freest people on the planet. You have one concern, to live a life of the one, worthy of the one who died in your place. How many things are you worried about right now that have nothing to do with living righteously for the rest of the day? Well, let me just ask that one again. How many things are you worried about right now? Financial things, marriage things, children things, relationship things. How many things are you worried about right now that have nothing to do with living righteously between now and the time you go to sleep. See, 
You're not free then, are you? You're carrying things that the cross was meant to take. Do you know why it was meant to take it? The full weight of the fury of God Almighty fell upon him. Can you imagine? He said, no, 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 no. Give me a little of that electricity. I know you died for me in my place, but I, I just I want to feel some more voltage. How absurd, right? Are you carrying baggage around right now? That has nothing to do with living a life worthy of him. Maybe we don't see the cross as our triumph because for us, we didn't get crucified with Christ. Maybe we just talked about it. I had a tough few weeks. And as I sit and think about those few weeks, I can't help but smile and say, what could you do to a dead man? If I am crucified in Christ, then what, what does a dead man have to worry about? What does a dead man need a reputation for? What does a dead man even need goodwill for? And you find out that our victory is being stolen because we don't understand how we got it. To be in Christ, you died with Him, which means you triumphed with Him. Romans 8, 21, the whole world is waiting for the kind of freedom that the sons of God are supposed to walk in every day. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the what kind of freedom? Glorious. What kind of freedom? Glorious. When people look at you, do they see glorious freedom or do they see a bundle of worry and depression wrapped in a religious cloak? When we don't look at the cross right, there's no chance we'll portray Jesus right. Are you hearing some things that might need to die tonight? Who in here has got a mortgage? Raise your hand you get a mortgage. JJ just got a mortgage. We're not going to ask you how much, JJ. Let's just assume it's a bunch. Like just a bunch. Like Mission Bend bunch. If I pay your mortgage off for you today, are you going to stop by sporadically, randomly, and pay the mortgage company anyway just because you want to? Glorious freedom means you have not one care in the world except pleasing the one who set you free. Glorious freedom Glorious freedom from fear of what people think, fear of what they do, fear of what happens to you, because there is no punishment in store for you. Only glorious freedom. Your life has to be defined by glorious freedom. Please don't let it be tainted by complaint, by opinion that's not driven by God. By factions, by self-interest. Don't do that. It diminishes the victory of the cross. If you have been set free, how free ought you to be? The world needs this freedom. Consider in the book of James, the first chapter in the 25th verse, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, what does the law do? 
it gives you freedom. When you read the Word, yes, it is a mirror for you. It may very well show you everything that's wrong with your life, but ultimately it frees you from that which is wrong for your life because He took the penalty. And all He is asking in return is that you serve Him out of a glorious freedom, not a bondage to sin. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this. Man, the the cross is not a one-time event in history. For you, it's a daily event. Not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He will be blessed in what he does. You want to honor the triumph of the cross? Live in a victorious way. And do it daily. When you look in the Word... It is a very small child, spiritually speaking, that looks into the Word and they see what they can't do. When you look into the Word, you need to see what you have been set free to do, what you are compelled to do. You no longer talk in terms of what you have to do. You talk in terms of what you get to do. Oh, the cross is our victory. James 2.12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by a law that... Does it sound like the law is a curse to you? No, whatever penalty is in the law, specifically being hung on a tree, Jesus took that penalty, that curse of the law in your place. You should have been crucified and you were not. He was and He invites you to join Him in that crucifixion by carrying your cross daily. Have you died to that life? It's easier to say than it is do. I personally find that that life follows me around like a jilted lover calling to me. Remember the days we used to have fun? No, they weren't that much fun. Always working at me to move backwards. The cross is that turning point in human history where I say, Jesus was obedient unto death. I will not dishonor his gift to me by going back to you. No, no, we would never go back. We do it every time we say carnal words. We do it every time we live in carnal thoughts. We do it every single time we choose sin over life. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful... Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy does what? The cross is a triumph because it is the mercy of God to you. The wrath of God falls on him that God's mercy might fall upon you. His holiness has to be satisfied. And he poured out the full venting of his anger for your deeds upon him so that what you have is mercy. Can you hear how yucky it is then to turn and not be merciful to one another? Oh man, you are free to show mercy to each other. You are free to love each other. You are free to do God's will no matter what happens because you will not be punished. Oh, that is so good. The Christian life is not a life of rules. There is nothing that I despise more than Christian rules. I will not be judged 
by you, not anyone else, for what I eat, drink, smoke, listen to, anything else, because I am free in Christ. And you know what? Nobody has counted the number of times I've used table salt today. Well, table salt just affects you. We're talking about behaviors that affect everyone. If it is sin, friends, every sin affects every person around you. Do you hear me? If it is actually sin, it is never isolated to just you. It will always affect those around you. If it is not sin, it doesn't do that. Did Jesus die for the person sitting on your left? How sure are you? Did he die for the person sitting on your right? How sure are you? What is their life worth if Jesus gave his life for them to live? What is their life worth to you? How scared ought you be to criticize what Jesus has paid for? People who have experienced the triumph of the cross, they live differently than every other person. They would be scared to speak about those who have inherited salvation as if they were ordinary men. They wouldn't do it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In Colossians 2.15, we find maybe the most triumphant statement in all of the Bible. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This was not a day of defeat. His life was not taken from him. The agony that he experienced physically was the smallest part of the triumph. He faced the wrath of God Almighty so that you could see the mercy of God Almighty. How you ought to live because of that. The very gallows that were built to discredit him have actually proven to be the platform upon which his message stands forever and ever and ever because he didn't back away from it for even one minute. That is a triumph, not a tragedy. I want to show you something in Isaiah. We'll have to close here before long. In Isaiah 13, this is a prophecy 740 years before Jesus. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Where are we going to raise the banner? On a bare hilltop. Shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. There would be a banner, a message raised on a bare hilltop that would say there is a noble gate. It would be a shouted message, a narrow way that you can enter. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath. Those who rejoice in my triumph. I don't understand because, Eric, it sounded for a minute like you were starting to talk about the crucifixion. A bare hill, a banner that's raised, a narrow gate, a noble gate. But what is all this about wrath? Those that have died with him on Calvary. 
those who face the crucifixion on the top of that bare hill, they are the very ones that are called holy and come to him and become instruments of his wrath for those that will not come. When he returns, his reward is with him. Do you know what else is with him? Where's our Acts 2 class? What else is with him? He is going to pay back everyone for all of the wicked deeds that they have done. When you think on that for just a minute, there is a day coming when the lamb that was slain and is worthy, the one who offered his life, will face those who rejected his gift. And you know what? They will receive the full fury of God's wrath. Oh, man. To be on this side of the cross is a triumph that is hard to describe. It's so beautiful. Not just escaping the wrath of God, but participating as a holy one with God. Considered a warrior like God is a warrior. Christian theology is uncomfortable with it, but King David was not. Christian theology is uncomfortable with it, but the book of Revelation is not. Christian theology is uncomfortable with it, but Peter was not when he was with Ananias and Sapphira. There is a day coming when those who refuse to die with him on Calvary will die before him in front of the whole world. Oh, how great and dreadful that day must be. Why is the cross a triumph? You don't face that day he faced the wrath of God Almighty for you oh man I don't even know what to say to that it's like your older brother stepped in and took the beating that you deserved so much worse than a beating the full vent of God's fury fell upon him the idea that God had to look away because of the sin on his son is preposterous. It's the same kind of Christian idea that can't look at the second coming of Christ as a judgment day for this world. They see it as some kind of reward ceremony in the sky. It's so much more than that. The enemies of God set a trap to discredit him. And it actually validated him. And now, if you embrace his work there and die with him, you who were once an enemy and have set the trap, you stand on top of his victory. That is incredible. Look at Micah 5 and verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Do you know what comes before this in Micah? Before this in the book of Micah is... You, O Ephrath of Bethlehem, you're not the smallest, but from you will come one whose origins are from old. Everybody knows that's about Jesus. Everybody knows that that is about the Son of God. Well, let's look at verses 4 and 5. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live security, securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth." If you were set free at Calvary from God's wrath, don't we have to go tell the rest of the world they can be set free and warn them of what is coming if they are not set free? 
You might be comfortable with somebody else dying for their sin. But if you were forgiven of yours and the full wrath of God should have fallen on you and it didn't and it's going to fall on someone else, it's almost as if they're dying for your sin too. Did you contribute to a sinful world? Do you contribute to a sinful world now? Have you extended hell into someone's life? Can you imagine the penalty for knowing that there was a way out of the wrath of God and not telling anyone? See, we have been set free from fear so that we can tell them. And you know what we do? We retract in fear and refuse to tell them. Who are you worried about punishing you, man or God? If you have the glorious freedom of a son of God, you become a witness to him everywhere you go because it's what the world is longing for. You don't view the cross as something sad. It's the triumph of God over man's sinful flesh. And you are living as a testament to victory over sin. Unless, of course, you're not. Then can you really have been to the cross if you are not living in victory over sin? Let's cover a few things that the cross does for you. In Colossians 2.14, he was nailed to it. With that nailing of his hands was the nailing of your penalty. Oh, man. Every time you lied to your parents, that was nailed to him. You ever see every once in a while we get a judge who makes somebody stand out at a street corner and tell people what they've done? You know, they'll have to wear some. Or, or some years ago, a kid who graffitied in Singapore got a public caning and the world went crazy. How could we let that happen? I was happy it happened. I mean, I think we are to cane people who do things like that. It would stop it from happening. I've been to Singapore and it's a beautiful place. But if you painted the graffiti on the wall and he stepped in and took your public caning, that would be nothing compared to facing the wrath of his father. And he did it for you. His hands bring forgiveness for the things that you did. Wow, say the things I did. Can you continue to do them? In Colossians 2.15, it says that he triumphed over the enemy. The very picture of triumph is when Joshua puts his foot on the neck of the enemy. That became an international symbol forever so that the conqueror stands over the conquered with one foot upon the prostrate corpse of the enemy. How did Jesus accomplish that? He was nailed to that curse. That curse fell upon him. And that was so that you might experience victory over sin. Can you really look to the cross every day and continue to sin? Can you really revisit what he's done for you and continue in sin? No right-thinking person could do that. The cross was meant to give you victory over sin. Forgiveness from sin that you've committed and victory over the sinful things that would come against you tomorrow. Come on, say, I have victory. victory. How did you get victory? Because at the cross, he 
gives you victory. Is that a sad thing? No, that's triumphant as all get out. In Matthew 27, 29, they twisted together a crown of thorns. <coughs> you, uh, you undoubtedly have heard all the same messages I have about Victor's thorns, how long they were, that if they were pushed upon his scalp, they seeded down into his skull. And again, the imagery is all how terrible it was physically. That's the smallest part of how terrible it was. The very image and symbol of sin he is wearing on his head in place of the crown that he deserves. Before the entire world, he is wearing the filthy things that you did on his head. And blood is running down into his eyes because of your deeds. He knew that. And he did it anyway. He wore the crown of thorns so that you could wear the crown of glory. That is incredible. How could we ever take a thing like that lightly or as sad? He wears a crown of shame that you might wear a crown of God's fame. That is incredible. See, if you really believe these things and you're visiting them daily because anybody who wants to follow him must deny themselves, take up the cross daily. Anyone who is doing this daily, it'll show up in the way that you live. You'll be free from fear. You'll be free from concern about anything except the next righteous deed you are supposed to do. And to the very small minority in this room that still defines righteousness by what you don't do, that's an offense to the cross. He's not righteous because he refused to come. He's not righteous because he refused to, to participate in the world around him. He's not righteousness because he refused the cross. He's righteousness because he did all of those things. People who define their righteousness by what they don't do is because they don't do anything. Maybe the most applicable of the bunch is as if the crucifixion was not enough, they stabbed him in the side with a spear. Already crucified, and he's stabbed in the side. Nothing hurts more in the Christian life than having already accepted Jesus and continuing to pierce him by our continued sinful ways. He was pierced in the side to bring your ongoing healing. It was a flow of blood and water. Not a drop, a flow. Do you know what that means? The work on the cross would continue to flow out to you. It wouldn't be a one-time event. It would continue to flow into your life. It would cleanse you every time you were tempted to go back to that yuckiness. The cross is not a tragedy. God actually set a trap for the enemy. As surely as Haman, the annihilator of God's people, was destroyed on the very device that he meant to defeat the Jews. The device intended to defeat Jesus became the instrument of his victory. And that victory is credited to you. How ought you to talk about the cross? Is it a sad event? No. It's the place of triumph. Unless for you it hasn't been the place of triumph. So I'm going to ask you, Christian... Has his hand brought you forgiveness? 
Has his hands brought you forgiveness? Yes. Has his hands brought you forgiveness? Yes. Then use your hands to show, to teach, to deliver, to do things that show forgiveness. Has his feet brought you victory? Yes. His feet brought you? Victory. His feet brought you? Victory. Then are you using your feet to carry that victory to the people around you? See, if his feet gave you victory, what are your feet doing? You are free. You're free from concern, free from fear, free from punishment, so that you can carry the victory given you at the cross to those that don't know about it yet. How about this crown? Do you walk around with a man, like a man with a crown of life on his head? Do you walk around shining with the authority of the king of the sheep upon you? Or do you walk around like ordinary men, thinking ordinary thoughts? He wore shame so you could wear a crown of life. Do you have a crown of life, saints? Yes. Do you have that crown? Yes. What are you going to do to make sure that others get a chance to wear that crown? Have you ever pierced his side? Since learning of what he did at the cross, have you needed blood and water to flow down from the cross to where you stand now? What do you need to extend to other people to help them get back to the cross? If you have shamed the name of Jesus since you became a partaker in the name of Jesus, how can we hold without mercy those who have done the same? Can't we make an easier path for them? Can't we let the blood of Jesus flow to them? Church, this is supposed to be the most triumphant subject in all of the world. And in every church I've ever been in, it's the most somber of all moments. Why is that? Because we don't feel prepared to face it except when we do communion. See, if you were facing the cross daily, the subject of the cross would be victory to you. If you were facing the cross daily, the subject of the cross would be joy to you. If you were facing the cross daily, the subject of the cross would be glorious freedom to you. You would sing of your great love for the cross. But instead, when the subject of the crucifixion comes up, we go somber, quiet, and cold. We evaluate our lives because we know good and well we need to. Wade's mama was right. Before you take communion, you're supposed to examine yourself. Is that the only time you're supposed to examine yourself? No. And if you examined yourself every day, then when you took communion, there would be nothing new to examine, would there? The cross is your daily reminder of what's been done for you and what you are commanded by God to do to the others. That's, that's what the cross is. Are we going to come to worship? What we want to do in this room tonight is we're going to close because it's Wednesday and it's crucifixion day. But we're not going to close grieving over how difficult the cross was physically. We're not going to close grieving over the ways in which you have not carried the cross.
what we're going to do is stand and slay our sin. We're going to stand and walk with the glory of that crown that he fought to give us. We're going to go face a world with a glorious message of freedom. And can I tell you something? If the cross is good, the resurrection of the dead, Easter Sunday is going to be extraordinary. It will be a knockout blow to the devil. And yet, somehow or another, the cross is set as opposed to the resurrection. Like, don't worry, Sunday's on the way. Jesus Christ was victorious at the cross even if there was no resurrection. Hear me. I said, no, 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 no. If there was no resurrection, we should be pitied. Paul did say that. It would not have taken away the fact that Jesus never sinned and lived obedient the whole time. That's victory in of itself. The fact that he was also God and that that was proven by an incredible life, that just takes great to the very ultimate. The resurrection is the culmination of God's plan for human history. But that does not make the cross something less. I want you to rejoice with me at what was accomplished at the cross. Stand to your feet.